You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I recently found a podcast. Honestly, this is one of the best resources out there because knowledge is power when it comes to money. So you need resources to help you make money, grow money, and keep money. This podcast helps you navigate investing, retirement, debt, savings, basically everything you need to know about personal finance. And it does it in a really quick way. Each episode is about 20 minutes or less. But anyway, the podcast that I'm talking about is called DIY Money. Do-it-yourself money, DIY money. These guys take a fun, it's, it's a real playful and entertaining approach to every all things money, and they know what they're talking about. I've known these guys for a decade. They're experts at what they do. This is what they do, and, and they love it. DIY Money takes listener questions on topics ranging from budgeting, tracking expenses, investing, retirement plans, and again, they cover making it, keeping it, growing it. And they do it also without putting you to sleep because some of those topics, budgeting, I can't stand listening to, but they make it fun. So do yourself a favor, check out the DIY Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to DIY Money. Check out the DIY Money Podcast. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Got a chance to talk to the founder, CEO of my favorite store, basically. I mean, I shop at Whole Foods all the time. Like, I think maybe 90% of my meals in one way or other come from Whole Foods. But... Uh, I was so happy. John Mackey, founder of Whole Foods, current CEO of Whole Foods, even though Amazon bought it for over $13 billion. He corrected me in the podcast because I said 11. Uh, John Mackey, author of Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. Great book. We talk about the book. We talk about capitalism and where capitalism came from and conscious capitalism. We talk about creativity. We talk about a lot of things, including this pandemic. So enjoy and let me know how it goes. So excited to have John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. And even though it was bought by Amazon for I don't know, $11 billion, something like that. John Mackey is still running the show. He's still the CEO of Whole Foods. Is that right, John? $13.7 billion, but- $13.7 uh, Who's bragging? Yeah, still running the show. Just have, a, instead of reporting to a board of directors, now I'm reporting to a senior executive at Amazon. And uh, most importantly, you have just come out with the book, Conscious Leadership. Let me read the subtitle. I always forget the subtitles. Elevating Humanity Through Business. The book is an excellent, I was taking notes throughout the book, John. I think this is an excellent way. It made me think about my own business activities and even creative activities because your ideas of disruption and building a culture around ideas applies to creativity just as much as it applies to business. So I thought uh, this book is very valuable for many different types of people to read. 
And it's a follow-up on your prior book, Conscious Capitalism, right. which uh, talks about you, your, your viewpoint on capitalism, which I, if it's okay, I would like to start with that. Sure. Yeah. So, so I, I get the sense that what you're calling conscious capitalism is what Adam Smith originally referred to as just capitalism, <laughs> that there was this invisible hand essentially is what he, how he referred to it, that the forces of capitalism, market forces would almost unintentionally tend to do the correct thing because that's how to create the most prosperous society and the most prosperous participants in that society and so on. Am I, am I off? Like, is there adjustments to the definition of capitalism to get to conscious capitalism? I admire Adam Smith in many ways. He was using a metaphor when he called the invisible hand because that was at an era that uh, believed God was doing everything, right? And so this was an invisible hand. But of course, in a complex economy, there's not an invisible hand doing anything. Individuals are, are making decisions. They're creating things. They're trading with each other. And those trades, uh, because they're win-win-win trades, help lift the society up to a higher place. So is conscious capitalism capitalism? Well, actually it is. It's just done in a more conscious way. But it is fundamentally capitalism. It's not socialism. But I think like... Um and I agree with you, it's definitely not socialism, but I'm just wondering, like, look, Whole Foods is a great example in that, you know, initially you started out with a, a store that was much more health conscious, but not necessarily what the customer wanted at that time. It was called the, the safer way. There was no sugar products at all. There were, there were, there was no meat. Uh, uh, and, and capitalism, you know, market forces, required you to adjust. And so you kind of recreated the store as, as Whole Foods. And then that became the mega chain we know of it today. And that has be, that strikes me as an example of both capitalism and conscious capitalism, but it was unavoidable. You, you kind of, to go the healthy route, you had to do Whole Foods according to capitalism. Well, it was avoidable. We could have put ourselves out of business. So there, right. are, there are always choices. We chose to adapt to the marketplace as we found it rather than demand that the marketplace be as pure as we wanted to be because we decided there wasn't a business, a good enough business there for us to, to flourish. Did your original customers resent that you added in meat and more snacks and things like that? Uh, I love the kettle popcorn at Whole Foods. Thanks. There was no kettle popcorn back in 1978. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, always somebody doesn't like it when you change something. But people vote with their pocketbooks. And our sales went up, gosh, from Safer Way, Whole Foods, uh, they went up about six or seven times greater than they were. So I'd have to say that overall people like the change. And and I want to, of course, get to conscious leadership. But were, were you? Who were your competitors back then? Was it like AMP or these these big grocery chains, Kroger's? You mean who were our supermarket competitors? Because in a lot of ways, back when we were in the early days, nobody was selling what we were selling. We were completely differentiated. Nobody was selling organic produce. Nobody was selling natural meats. Nobody was selling foods that didn't have any artificial ingredients, flavorings, preservatives in it. So they were mostly uh, other natural food stores we were competing against in the very early days. 
And the supermarkets, we just ignored them because we were like completely different. And we had a different customer base, the people that shopped our stores. In the early days, as one venture capitalist told me, he refused to invest in Whole Foods. You guys just seem to me to be a bunch of hippies selling food to other hippies. And that doesn't seem like a very big market to me. And uh, so he was kind of right, but what he didn't realize is that um, the ideas and the products would begin to penetrate into a more uh, traditional American consumer uh, over time. And that's what happened. Did you, do you think you helped create the market or did you predict that that trend was coming or was this just something? It's both. Because we clearly got in front of a wave and got on top of a wave that was going to crest whether we were there or not. But we also accelerated it because Whole Foods was, um, got out and ahead of everybody else in terms of the way our stores were and our product mix and our vision was, was out there. And that's why we ended up being the most successful over the long term. So we helped create the market because our stores were so beautiful and we had such good produce and, and perishables were so excellent, that began to appeal to a more traditional middle-class, upper-middle-class customer who wouldn't have shopped for natural foods in like an old hippie store. We made our stores beautiful and we have great service. And people will buy quality. They're always a market for quality. And so, I mean, one way to think about it is that at the same time Whole Foods was really cranking up, so was Walmart getting into creating super centers and getting into the food grocery business. This was back when they first really got going on it. And all the conventional supermarkets were so terrified of Walmart that they did everything they could to cut the cost of their stores, cut the cost of their labor to get, so they could get their prices lower. And they also cut their quality in order to get their prices lower. And that kind of left a door wide open for Whole Foods to come in and be the quality operator. And we made beautiful stores. We had really beautiful produce. It was more expensive, but it was better and it was higher quality. And so Walmart actually did Whole Foods a big favor in the early days by kind of uh, plowing a, a path for us to go down that everybody else was abandoning so they could compete with with Amazon. I mean, not Amazon, compete with Walmart. Now, now um, that was a, a Freudian slip. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, usually disruption comes from below, right? So companies kind of innovate and innovate and innovate until they innovate past what the customer needs and they're too expensive and then you get disruption from below. But you disrupted from above, somewhat similar to how Apple basically disrupted the phone business by uh, disrupting from above with the iPhone. What do you think are the characteristics that let someone disrupt from the high end instead of the low end? Because it's, it's not that common. Another good example is Tesla, right? Yeah. Actually, that's a perfect example. So it's, if you disrupt from the high end, you've got to have a lot better products. You've got to have higher quality. If you drive a Tesla, then it's like, wow, I'm never going to drive another car. This is so much better than any other car I've ever driven. It's worth the money. I'm going to pay it. And once you really have high-quality food, it's like, well, I'm going to keep buying this stuff. I'm not going to go back to that other stuff. I'm going to take care of myself. I deserve to have the very best food. So I think that's true for Apple as well. Once I remember the first time I used an iPhone. It was like, well, I'm going to... I'm not going to go back to that cheaper phone. This is so much better. Look at all the things I can do. Look at all the apps I have. So it has to be like 
it's got to be a lot better. You've got to you've got to disrupt from qualities from the quality standpoint because uh, you're not disrupting from lower prices. You're you're disrupting by just having a much better product or much better service. And and you know your customer service and this is this is uh, starts to segue into your new book uh, Conscious Leadership. Your customer service. I I, I remember employees of Whole Foods, right? From the first time I was going there, they really valued themselves as brand representatives. Like they were experts on quality, healthy, organic food. Like, and they would explain things to me. They wanted to show me where things were. Well, that's, uh, that's part of our business strategy. I mean, um, everybody likes to, to get good service. Who doesn't like good service? I mean, it's kind of like who doesn't like quality. But how would you get, how would you instill in people that sense of kind of brand ownership at the lowest level? Because I think that's I think that's difficult. Like the it doesn't it doesn't happen again with every business. Well, it's not that difficult. But you have to first of all it starts with your purpose and what you stand for. Because because when a business has a higher purpose, it attracts people that resonate with that higher purpose. They want to be part of it. They're attracted to it. It's like, wow, this is cool. I want, I want to do this. And then because they're aligned with the purpose, then you do good training. You teach people, this is how we, we serve customers. Customers are our most important stakeholder. We're always going to want to show them where the products are. We want them to have a good experience in the stores. That's how we fulfill our purpose. That's how we fill our, our, our mission to nourish people on the planet. And you're the key to that. And then also... We learned early on that if you really want to give good customer service, you got to make your place, you got to make the team members happy. Happy team members result in happy customers. If you expect to get good service from people and you don't treat them well, well, you know, you're, they're not going to do it because they're going to have an undergird of resentment or uh, I'm not being fairly paid, I'm not being well treated, this company stinks, and uh, they're not going to serve the customers well. So you got to make your you got to make your team members happy, and they'll make the customers happy. And in in your book, Conscious Leadership, you mentioned how uh, a lot of these great companies are you know have this very grand point of view. They have this purpose, mission, purpose leaders. And I'm wondering of an example. Are there any great companies you could think of that don't really have sort of a, a grand, almost religious purpose? Like you know, your purpose roughly was to feed people healthy food, give, pe- have, give people access to healthier meals. And it's a grand vision and it, and it worked. Can you think of any companies that didn't have that type of point of view? Uh, increasingly, I mean, the answer is yes, I can think of some, but I'm not going to name them because that'll be taken as criticism of companies and I'm not in the business of criticizing other companies. But uh, if you have a really breakthrough technology, for example, you can build a business around that technology just because it's so much better. But in the long run, your technology will be iterated and copied and improved upon. And you, if you don't have that deeper mission and purpose, your company may not be long of this world. And you'll be acquired by somebody else. That's what oftentimes happens. I'd rather talk about companies that have a higher purpose and uh, they, they end up doing great things. And I think, I think great companies have great purposes. For instance, Apple, you mentioned Nike. Yeah, uh, Amazon, we, Google. Amazon. Uh, and, and, you know, the only reason I bring up other types of companies is because I think the average person, I look at this in a, in a personal way too, and I think the average person might 
think, okay, this is great for CEOs and entrepreneurs, but I have to go to work every day. I'm in this cubicle. I have my kids waiting for me at home. How can they think of their, like almost like a, you know, me Inc. And, and, and formulate their higher purpose in terms of their work life? Well, first of all, that company's doing a very poor, they're not doing a good job if the people working for them don't understand the higher purpose of the company and they're not doing a good job communicating it to them on a consistent basis. If you really want to instill purpose to your organization, A, you got to talk about it all the time. B, the leadership has to embody it because people pay a lot more attention to what you do than what you say. So if you're not walking the talk, then you're not going to have any credibility. And I'd like to think I embody the, the higher purpose of Whole Foods, and I think many of our leaders do. But we talk about it all the time. So people do know about what Whole Foods' purpose is. Our, we put our core values, we put our higher purpose up in our stores. They're there. If you go into our stores and look around, you'll see it. It's there. So we are constantly harping upon it. Now, in terms of your average team member, how do they connect up to that purpose when they're, as you say, in a cubicle? Assuming they understand it, every type of higher purpose has some type of connection to the value creation that the business is doing. Google's higher purpose is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. That's one line. It's easy to understand. And uh, um, as a result, I mean, everything uh, Google's done has, in a lot of ways, been about taking that information and making it universally accessible. I, I can't remember the last time I went through an entire 24 hours without using Google at some point. Mm. I mean, on a search or on Google Maps, or um, I guess those are the two main ways I interface with Google. But I'm on Google right now. I'm on Google Chrome. So I'm on that. I'm on their uh, their browser. And uh, there's there's Google email. And there's just a lot of ways you might use Google in a, in a day. So it's up to the company to make sure everybody understands that their work is contributing to the company's higher purpose which is somehow or another creating value for customers. So if a company's trying to figure out its higher purpose, put purpose first, this first chapter in our book, then to put purpose first, you have to talk about it and you have to get team members to understand it, engage with it, and then you have to show them how their work is directly contributing to the company fulfilling its mission. And all work at a company is doing that. It's just people don't always see it, so you have to help them see it. If you're in a cubicle, if your work's not contributing to the purpose of the company, then, my God, I doubt you'll have a job that long. Somebody will eventually figure out you're not really actually making a, con a valuable contribution, and, and your job will be eliminated. But, you know, maybe they, maybe a company, again, you know, maybe they don't have conscious leaders, and they haven't really communicated to employees what their what their vision is what their point of view is and so they haven't uh, con you know been able to communicate appreciation to the employees i'm wondering in what ways can employees take control of their own conscious leadership even from leading from behind and uh, you know what I, I i was just while i was reading i was thinking of the the techniques from this book how this could be useful you know to everybody and not necessarily just the ceo or the board of a company the ideas in the books are useful to everyone because they work. 
putting purpose first, leading with love, integrity in all things, find win-win solutions. You can, and if you can do that on your teams within an organization, it doesn't have to be that the CEO is necessarily doing it. Right. So if I'm an employee, maybe I could, you know, help out to the other employees around me or, you know, have a purpose where I'm going to contribute no matter what anybody is telling me I'm doing or so if, if you, so if you, I think you read the book. So yes, there's every chapter has practices that you can use to practice, to become, these are useful. These are not only useful exercises for leadership. They're useful exercises for life. I guarantee you, if you begin to practice win-win-win, finding win-win-win solutions in your normal life, if you, use that, if you use that as your ethical code, you will become enormously successful in life. You will have many, many friends. People will love you because you're going to be of service to them. You're always trying to figure out how to have a win-win-win relationship with them. So you're going to be putting their interests first. You're going to be seeking them to get... They're going to want to be around you because you make their life better. If you're leading with love then you're sharing love with people and everybody wants and needs love. And if you're showing integrity in all things that you do, you're going to be very trustworthy because we trust people who have integrity, who do what they say, are honest, do the right thing, are honorable, follow through with their commitments, who have integrity. Those are the people we trust. The people we don't trust are people who don't have integrity. So you're going to be having love. You're going to be having win-win solutions. You're going to be leading with integrity. You're going to be in a servant leadership position, helping people. I'm telling you, this book is useful to anybody that will read it because it will transform their lives to be more effective in, in their relationships and their marriages with their kids uh, at work in almost every phase of your life. This is almost a a manual. It's a self-help manual, but it all, but it's in, in disguise as a leadership book. It's both. And you, you bring up um, Zappos quite a bit. And of course, Amazon um, and Zappos is owned by Amazon. It seems like Jeff Bezos looks for similar cultures to integrate in. And in many cases, like, like Whole Foods, the brand is still left completely separate, uh, which I think is a good thing. That's a, a, you know, usually a sign of a good acquisition. And how are you how are you feeling so far? Do you feel like uh, Jeff is also leading with the conscious leadership? You know, I'll tell you something. one of the one of the lessons that I've learned as a conscious leader is not to judge other people based on their level of consciousness. This is not a game to rate people on how conscious they are. Is this person conscious or is this person not conscious? We're all in a continuum. I mean, we're conscious about some things and less conscious about others. And it's not my position. In some ways, to the degree you're judging other people, you're showing how unconscious you are. <laughs> because it's about helping you to become more conscious and helping make your organization become more conscious. It's not a rating thing. How conscious is Amazon? How conscious is Jeff Bezos? What do you think about Google? I'm just trying to make myself as conscious as possible and help others to become more conscious. I'm not about judging or rating or comparing. It's important to get knowledge about money. You, you're not just going to learn it from experience because that's the fastest way to learn money. And I, I used to think it was hard to learn lessons about the market because the internet is so saturated 
with advice. So it took me a long time to find the resources that I use. I've been using for 20 years for my own self to learn about money, investing. But I do want to say, you know, there's this one podcast that stands out for me that I recently discovered, and it's easy to tap into just about any money subject you want to listen to and get honest, trustworthy advice to get you in the right direction for your finances, your family's wellness, your future, or even your present. Because quite frankly, all the time, it's good to have more money than less money. So the podcast is called DIY Money, DIY as in do it yourself. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else you get your podcast. If you have your phone by you, you could check it out. You could subscribe right now. They've got some great episodes. The most recent episode that I'm looking at is how to deal with finances during this COVID-19 crisis. And if you start listening now, imagine you know, you're know you going to get a better relationship with money. Knowledge is power. And this podcast at 20 minutes an episode is just a fast way to learn about all the different aspects of money, whether it's about investing, retirement, budgeting, taxes, whatever. The hosts, Daniel and Quint, they just take a fun and entertaining and playful approach to this stuff, to money, to finance. They know what they're talking about. I've, I've known Quint for a decade and I trust him and I trust his financial advice. DIY Money takes listener questions on topics from budgeting to tracking expenses to investing to retirement plans. And they do it, importantly, without putting you to sleep. So do yourself a favor, check out the DIY Money podcast wherever you get your podcast. This is more important than ever now that we're in this kind of crisis because of the coronavirus. Stay up to date with good, talented, smart people. Podcasts like this are the best resource for financial information. DIY money. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for fourteen hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when 
you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, I, I feel like, well, you know, as I was reading this, I, I, I started to think of the ways in which I don't uh, do conscious leadership in the various areas of my life. And it made me want to improve. Like sometimes I'm not as appreciative of the people around me as I could be. And I do think it's important. I do think it's really important with, you know, employees. I haven't had obviously your experience with tens of thousands of employees, but was there a point ever in your time at, at Whole Foods where you felt like you weren't consciously leading? And then how did you realize it and then adjust? Of course. I mean, that happens. That's happened thousands of times. I think we all, we all have bad days. We all become fearful or we become angry or become judgmental. We're not always conscious. We sometimes are caught up in our emotions and we do stupid things that we regret. I mean, that's like living. That's part of life. That's in every, in every relationship we're in. Uh, but here's the thing. As soon as you remember and focus, then it's like, oh, yes, I forgot. It's all about love. Or it's, it's about uh, uh, having integrity. It's about um, finding win-win-win solutions. Once you focus again, you, can, you get to choose again. Even when you make mistakes, you can correct those mistakes by becoming more conscious in the moment. So you have to go back to it again and again and again. Think of it as like going to sleep, you go to sleep for a while, then you remember who you are, you wake back up, and then you're conscious again. And the more and more you practice it, 
you can become conscious all the time or almost all the time. And, uh, uh, and then you, if you make a mistake, that's okay. You just correct it and you go back to being conscious again. So it's, 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 I learned this from meditating because when you meditate, you're, you're following your mantra, you're following your breath and you get lost in your thoughts. And it's like, then you remember, oh yeah, meditating back to the mantra, back to the breath. And then, so then you go back on it and then the more you practice it, the better you get at it. Honestly, it's the same way with being a conscious leader. When you go unconscious, just wake back up again. And then the more you wake up, the, the easier it is to wake up the next time, the shorter the gap between going to sleep is. And then there comes a time when you're conscious in life almost all the time. And uh, that's the goal. That's what we're trying to help our, our readers to do. I like how you say, um, don't, don't ask kids what they want to do when they grow up, ask them what they love to do. And uh, again, I always think about, particularly right now in, in this post-pandemic or, or not we quite post-pandemic. Post That's so no, no, glad to I, hear that. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a Freudian slip. So I hope to be post-pandemic sometime soon. But I think a lot of people are going to be thinking to themselves, well, what do I love to do? I've just been doing this thing that I got laid off from for 20 years and now I want to do something I love and makes money. Like how should they start? They, they might've lost the muscle to figure out what they love to do. I don't know. I think people, people know what they love to do. What they don't know and what they don't trust is whether they can earn a living doing what they love. Mm. Uh, so I guess I'm very fortunate. I, when I was very young, I got so passionate about natural and organic foods and eating healthier, and I just found my calling. And uh, I was 23 years old, living in this vegetarian co-op, became the food buyer, and it was like I couldn't get enough of it. I learned how to cook. I thought I, I when I I knew from exercise that you could feel better based on you know if you go for a run or you you play basketball, you do yoga, makes you feel better. But I didn't know when I was young that, gosh, you know, what you eat really affects how you feel, your energy level, your sleep, how well that, uh, how strong your immune system is, your vitality, how you age. It's all wrapped up into what you eat. And uh, I just got it at a young age. And then I'd found my purpose. And, you know, I got to be honest, I didn't set out to build a great company or, um, become wealthy or anything else. I just was passionate about natural and organic foods. And we only had one store and we were, we were doing really well with it. I don't know if we'd have had a second store except we had a big flood. And, uh, you know, and that's wiped our store out. It was like we reopened the store, but it was like we better get a second store so we don't, in case this happens again, we don't risk going out of business. That second store was successful and it was like, that was fun, let's do a third store. That worked too. Hey, let's do a four store. And then we began to grow on a more conscious level. But I'd say the first three or four stores, we didn't have any, any big ambitions. We just were having fun. And I, I think that's what, I, I want to double down on that. What we were doing was just having fun, doing what we like to do. And then growing was fun too. And it was challenging. And it was like, I wonder if we could go to California. That we had all our stores were in Texas, 
And it was like, wow, California, that's where natural foods, I mean, I don't know if we can do that. It's the Bay Area? Oh, my God, that's where Silicon Valley is and San Francisco. I wonder if we can measure up there. And he said, well, we won't know if we don't try. So we opened a store in Palo Alto, and it was a huge success. That led to Berkeley, then Mill Valley, and, and then, then, we just, then we took off. We just started growing a lot faster. But we were just really kind of following our bliss, as Joseph Campbell says. What, what made us happy? What got us excited? Uh, there was, we weren't a bunch of MBA students that had some kind of master plan. It's very important to emphasize that. We were a bunch of young people, full of ideals, full of passion, and having a good time doing what we love to do and built a company. And uh, honestly, it's still true today. We're still having a good time. We're still building a company. We're still opening stores. We're still having fun. You know, what was, when in the beginning of the book, you talk about almost kind of a, a, a crisis in leadership that was happening at Whole Foods where the board was trying to reaffirm your, your or was trying to decide whether to reaffirm your commitment as, as CEO. What was going on specifically? Like what was, maybe describe like what was, what was going on then? Yeah, well, that was actually 20 years ago now. And, uh, so about halfway through our history of our company. So we started, Safeway was 1978, Whole Foods was 1980. This happened in the year 2000, right before 2001. And the background for that is that back when the whole first internet boom came along, we uh, acquired a vitamin company called Amrion that was based in Boulder, Colorado. My wife and I moved to Boulder to... We thought this internet thing was going to be big, and we wanted. We thought, why did we didn't see any reason why we couldn't we couldn't be part of that? So the vitamin company gave us the springboard. We thought because they were mail order that we could use them, and we could. And we we our slogan back then was Whole Foods, Whole People, Whole Planet. So we named the company WholePeople.com. And I guess in a lot of ways we were trying to be like Amazon. I mean, Amazon had already started back in 1994. This was 1999, and we just were uh, we were getting into a lot of different areas and based around natural and organic foods and vitamins, but we were selling other stuff too. And then there was that big, you know, what they call the dot com bomb, where it all blew up, and and pets dot com and gardens dot com and all of these, everybody that got out there early started to go bankrupt, and the writing on the wall was that whole people wasn't doing much business. And so we, we decided to sell off our assets and shut it down. And we did, we sold off the assets and shut it down. And I moved back to Austin. And so all I will say, cause I'm trying to protect the, the names here is that one of my senior executives sort of conspired with a couple of directors who wanted to get rid of me. Who is he? Name names. Uh, <laughs> he's a bad guy. <laughs> we're no, judging actually, him. Actually, he and I, um, we're friends again today. We, we, we made up and uh, we're still friends today. So, um, but so there was a coup attempt to uh, take me down. And uh, that's actually how the book starts out. That's the introduction of the book. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I came close to um, to losing my job, and I learned a lot of lessons from that. One thing I learned is how important the board of directors is. They can fire me. But when you're the entrepreneur and you create the company, it never occurs to you that anybody could fire you. But I didn't have enough 
stock ownership to prevent that from happening, and we'd gone public. So the board was very powerful, and one of my great lessons was, two great lessons. Um, one lesson was uh, you got to cultivate the board because they have, they have power over you, and you shouldn't take them for granted. I think I had taken our board for granted. So from that point forward, I always paid a lot of attention to our board. And the second thing is you got to know your executives. And uh, this guy had worked for me for 17 years, and I, I really, really trusted him. But he had his own ambitions. He had thought he ought to be running the company instead of me. And so I've decided that from that point onward, I pay a lot of attention to who, who's around me, who's on my team, uh, how trustworthy they are, what are their ambitions, what are they striving for, uh, are, they, are they on my team, are they good servant leaders? So I learned that lesson. And third, it really, the big lesson, of course, is that it, it helped me to, to, to come into my full power as a leader. I really stepped up after that. I took, I took more control. I delegated less, and I took a little bit more control of the company and uh, began to... Um, uh, remember, I had gone off to do that dot-com business, and I'd been really not running the company for a full year. So I, I needed to reassert myself into the company and uh, put, put more of my leadership stamp on the business. And I did that going forward and still do that today. Did, did you feel, do you feel that, um, you know, often it's the founder that has the real uh, vision slash purpose slash point of view. Do you feel that you stepping back into your full role um, allowed that, point of view just to spread more in the company do you think sure. you know do you think if a non-founder took over they would have been able to have a similar point of view i mean there always comes a time when a founder has to step aside because they just get old and they are they get tired of it and they don't want to do it anymore but one way to think about it is the way i've always thought about it is building a business or creating a business is like having a child you fall madly in love with your child and i Sometimes. don't have i don't have biological children and so Whole Foods has been my child, and uh, I haven't been the only parent, but, it, but I've certainly felt it like it was, it was a child that I love very desperately. I love it with all my heart, and, and nobody's ever quite loved Whole Foods like I love it. And I've given my whole life to it, or almost my whole life, from the last 42 years of my life I've given to Whole Foods Market. And, uh, and so I think about it differently. I think long-term... I'm not really seeing what I can get out of it. I'm serving it. I want it to flourish. I really care about the team members. I love the team members. I, I care about the purpose and the mission. I'm a steward. I'm a servant of the company. We talk about servant leadership in the book. And uh, I do truly feel like I'm a servant leader for Whole Foods. I really have always put Whole Foods' interest first. And to what extent um, is that relationship, has that relationship changed as now uh, – an acquisition of a larger company. You know, the joke I make about it is it's like if, Whole, if I'm the father of Whole Foods and Whole Foods is my daughter, it's like I, my daughter, I married my daughter off to the richest man in the world. <laughs> Literally. I mean, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. Amazon's either the most valuable or the second most valuable corporation on the planet Earth. So... That's been a really good partner for us. And I've come along to make sure the marriage works well. And uh, there will come a time when I'm satisfied it's working well and I'm ready to do other things while I'm still uh, young enough to do them in a healthy way. 
but that time's not quite yet. What, what do you think could come in and disrupt a company like Whole Foods? I mean, obviously, Trader Joe's was an attempt. No, no, Trader Joe's is a very great competitor, and they—they, they, I don't know if they've disrupted us, but they've—they've they've satisfied a little bit different part of the market than uh, than Whole Foods is satisfied. And in a lot of ways, we've we've helped each other. Each company's helped the other company to be a better company. Um, I mean, one of the—I think Amazon would have disrupted us if we hadn't merged with them. Amazon's an incredibly innovative company. They clearly want to have a presence in the grocery market. They're obviously well capitalized. So um, it was good for us to partner up with them rather than compete with Amazon. You know, I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what's the relationship between liberta- uh, being a libertarian and conscious capitalism? Because I, I, when I read that about you, I didn't, I didn't quite expect it. I didn't know what what the intersection was with the, I don't usually think of them together, but maybe I should. Well, libertarian, you know, I almost don't use that term anymore because people, it's kind of, uh, people don't understand what it means. And so you oftentimes get, they think a libertarian is some kind of right wing nut. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm right wing at all. And so I tend to self-identify a first as a conscious capitalist. And then secondly, as a classical liberal, I, I, and I think classical liberals believe in capitalism, believe in liberty. They believe in and class and, and capitalism is misnamed. It's, it's far better name. We we think the right name is to call it innovationism, because what capitalism really is, it's about innovation. It's about creating and disrupting and creating new ideas and putting them to practice in the world. It's less about capital than it is about innovation. So innovation is really at the heart and soul of it. And, uh, and again, capitalism is a loaded word. People project all kinds of things onto it, either good or bad, increasingly bad. And that's unfortunate because I think the innovationism has been the economic system that's done so much good for the world. It's, if you go back 200 years ago, 85% of everyone alive on the planet lived on a dollar a day or less. Think about that, 85%. And they didn't live very long. The average lifespan was 30 and 90% of the people were illiterate. Let's go forward 200 years under capitalism, and instead of 85% of people living on less than a dollar a day, it's down to like 8%. Uh, instead of living to age 30, the average lifespan now is over 70. Uh, instead of uh, 90% illiteracy, we have 90% literacy. This has all basically been due to the, the prosperity that capitalism or innovationism has created. So... Yes, I believe in capitalism. I believe in innovationism. I'm a classical liberal. I believe in freedom, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, freedom to trade, freedom to create wealth and trade it, creating value for other people. I, I love the phrase innovationism because it's it's more of a direction than capitalism. So capitalism is about how you know the al- allocation of capital leads to prosperity whereas it, it, it but you're right innovation comes james innovation came, comes first you know who came up with the name of capitalism right no karl marx oh well there you go exactly the enemies of the of of innovationism call it capitalism so it in a lot of ways that's a bad name it doesn't describe it it's not it's not what the friends of the economic system of universal prosperity would 
would call it. I think I prefer to call it innovationism. Karl Marx prefers it to call it capitalism because he hated it. Right, well, because, because the accumulation of capital, I guess, just thinking about Marxism now, the accumulation of capital is what causes the struggle, whereas if he said innovations cause struggle, it wouldn't make any sense. That's right. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but I think you're right. Uh, and I like in, in that chapter on innovationism, you give a lot of different like techniques by, or, or styles by which companies or individuals, by the way, could be innovative. And I like, there was one that was intriguing, particularly intriguing to me, the, the con, you know, innovation through conspiracy. And maybe you could describe that a little bit. I thought that was very interesting. Innovation through conspiracy? Yeah, that a company sort of, uh, you mentioned um, John Sweet, who started several IT companies, uh, and how oh, he would John like- John Street, right. Oh, Street, I, got, yeah. I got you. We tell John's story in there. Um, I think the I think the main point there is is that um, innovations are frequently uh, unlike sometimes the way the media paints it is they are more far more collaborative than we realize that because we tend to we tend to want to glorify sort of a genius like uh, Steve Jobs or Thomas Edison or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos uh, as sort of these geniuses that create these amazing, amazing disruptive technologies that change the world. Well, they might have been the drivers, and they, all those people are quite brilliant, but it's always a team that does this stuff, and so they're collaborating with each other. And it, we, we make a big deal in the book about how there's special places where, you, where a lot of people have uh, these, these ideas, and they're, they're having collisions with each other and exchanging ideas. So it might have been... If jazz in New Orleans in the 20s and Paris for art in, in the 19, 1890s and uh, Silicon Valley for technology in the 1970s to where we are today, right? So my, when you get a lot of the same minds thinking about the same things together and they run into each other, you get a lot faster innovation because they're more they're more uh, more it, when you're talking to a really smart person, you think of things you never thought of before because they give you ideas. They say things that you never thought of before, and that triggers your own thinking in ways that, and until it had been triggered, you never went down that direction. And you hear an idea, and you think that's a terrific idea, and then you start to iterate on it, and that so that's why it's like a conspiracy. But what John is talking about there in conspiracies is that. If, you're, if, if your team feels like, remember when Steve Jobs was creating the Macintosh? It's famous. They broke away from the rest of Apple, and he flew a pirate flag. That's a conspiracy. A bunch of outsiders trying to transform Apple, trying to transform the computer industry. It's a type of conspiracy. Conspiracies are natural foods. Conspiracies in a... Uh, conspiracies are a way in a group that are outsiders makes them feel like they're kind of at the cutting edge of change and they're special. So I think that's what John meant by conspiracies. And people like to feel like they're part of a secret clique that's, uh, that's changing the world, right? That's a pretty good feeling. I'm part of this clique that's changing the world. I'm part of a conspiracy. Well, and, and do you feel you can keep cultivating that in, in a company the size of Whole Foods? Or was there ever a point where... You kind of lost that us versus them feeling. I think you do it because you you keep it sort of decentralized. I mean, 
you're divided into teams, and every team can be its own conspiracy. So Whole Foods is a set of really a series of teams. There's teams, several teams in every store. There's a grocery team and produce team, specialty team, customer service team, meat team, seafood team, whole body team, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got the store organized into teams. The teams are largely self-managing, and then they interlock all the way up. In a region, the teams are connected in the regional level. Regions are connected on a global level. So the conspiracies are the the sense of it's just important that people not be cogs in a, in a machine, that they are vital members of a team, and their, and their contributions on the team are valuable. So no matter how big Whole Foods gets, it's always going to be organized into smaller teams. It's a little bit like my body consists of literally trillions of cells, right? But the, tra- the cells are organized into into tissues, and the tissues are organized into organs, and the organs are organized into the larger system, the nervous system, the endocrine system, and then together those systems make up the human body. They're sort of all decentralized, but they coordinate well together. I think it's similarly the same way as organizations get bigger. Uh, You have these decentralized cells that work together, cooperate together, and, and it end up and becoming a full, whole body. You, if we're talking, your body's digesting food, it's breathing, it's you've got an immune system that's fighting off, hopefully not fighting off COVID, but fighting something else off, and uh, that you're constantly doing all the stuff and you're not even conscious of it. And uh, I think an organization is the same way. All this stuff's happening in Whole Foods. I'm having this conversation with you right now. But across our 522 stores and 100,000 team members, every store is in the company is open right now, hopefully, and uh, they're all doing business and they're all – stuff's happening. I guarantee you bad stuff's happening right now and good stuff's happening mostly. But it's all happening. I'm not in control of it. It's just happening. It's like I, I'm breathing and my, I'm digesting. And, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because Whole Foods, of course, was open during, during these economic lockdowns, during the pandemic. Uh, a lot of stores were closed. A lot of businesses were closed. You know, and, and I think about this in terms of conscious capitalism. So in New York City, for instance, a lot of stores, restaurants, every type of store were, were closed down. Employees of these stores set up GoFundMes. People either contributed to them or didn't. I wonder if a role of conscious capitalism during this time would have been more people of means kind of helping directly employees and and companies that were shut down in the community as opposed to just waiting for a centralized government to pass a, a massive stimulus bill, which by the way, I'm not against. The government's the one who asked everybody to stay home. But I wonder if there was a role for conscious capitalism in there as well, where the 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 you know, participants who were maybe doing well during this time would have been able to help the ones not doing as well. Like where, where, where does, cause, cause let's say the goal is we don't, we want government to be as decentralized as possible and, and as little involvement as possible because only we truly know the local needs, uh, like you do with whole foods. Uh, I wonder if something could have happened there a little bit more that didn't happen. Stuff did happen. I mean, you take a company like whole foods, we give 10% of our profits away every year. So that's the maximum we can legally give away and, and, mm. and get to write it off. So part of that's done through our foundations, our whole Planet Foundation, our whole Kids Foundation, whole Cities Foundation. All three of those foundations are doing amazing things. 
I mean, the whole Planet Foundation has helped over 5 million people in the world. Almost 100% of those are ethnic minorities uh, in over 77, country, 77 countries now. And uh, we've made lives better for literally millions of people, entrepreneurs, by making microcredit loans to them. And, and the whole Kids Foundation gives salad bars and gardens and beehives to any school in America that wants it. And we've given away over 10,000 salad bars and over 6,000 gardens and several hundred beehives at this point. So, but that's only a small part of our philanthropy. We give massive amounts of food to food banks. So Whole Foods was helping feed people all across the United States during this, during the pandemic so that we help people to not be hungry. We also do, every one of our stores does at least four or 5% days a year where we're giving 5% of our revenues to the local nonprofits that those, that those stores want to support. And they're making those choices for what they want to support. So we've always felt like uh, the community stakeholder is an important stakeholder that we need to to help serve and give value to. So I, I do think conscious businesses were involved in that. I mean, when there have been crises like uh, hurricanes or, I mean, even in some of these cases, like I, I'll give you an example. Uh, I don't know, about four years ago, Austin had, remember that flood that wiped out Whole Foods Market that caused us to have a second store? Well, Austin had another similar flood like that uh, just a few years ago. And Whole Foods gave, I think we loaned a million dollars to, uh, at very low interest rates to our neighbors who who kind of went out of business because of the flood. And uh, uh, they had really long payout times. We were, they were mostly gifts, but we wanted people to feel like they should pay us back if they could. So I think, I think companies do far more philanthropy than you realize. They just don't get credit for it. I can talk until I'm blue in the face to the media about what Whole, Whole Foods does philanthropically, and they'll never write it up because it's not an interesting story. It contradicts the narrative that business is selfish and greedy. When you talk about all the good things business does, nobody wants to write about it. I think there was far more done and, has, and is still being done in this pandemic by corporations to help people than you realize. And, and it seems like the media is going in that direction and can't be stopped where uh, uh, you know, it's, it becomes more about fear than about news. And I don't know when that when it reached a tipping point, but it seems like it's beyond a tipping point. And that's what scares me even more than, you know, the pandemic. Well, I mean, most of the people in the media are anti-capitalist. They don't really believe in capitalism. They think it's greedy and selfish and exploitative and needs to be overthrown. So, um, yeah, they believe... Yeah, I mean a lot. I mean a lot of them believe in socialism. What can I say? They're they're not capitalists. But like economically, if you if you even take it like two steps ahead, you know why would anybody innovate? How would you redistribute things so that it would be quote unquote fair when you know allocation of resources is not always fair? Well, I think a better question would be: there have been forty-two socialistic experiments in the last hundred years. Forty-two countries have tried socialism. Not one of them has succeeded. Not one. And it strikes me as utterly amazing that people believe that if you, if you put democratic in front of it, that it's like putting lipstick on a pig, that somehow or another this time it's going to be different. It, it won't be. Socialism doesn't work. 
It, it doesn't create prosperity. It creates poverty. And it's proven it again and again and again and again. I've studied it. The average person hasn't. And capitalism works. It creates prosperity. It lifts people out of poverty. That's the track record. It's been proven. Experiments have been done. So we can make capitalism more conscious, but that's what we hope for. We try to make capitalism more awake, more conscious, focused on its higher purpose, focused on serving all of its stakeholders, focused on being good citizens in their communities. And I think that's as good as it gets. And look, I think, um, I think your book really outlines step-by-step step how to be a conscious leader. And it's, again, it's not just for the CEO or the entrepreneur or the founder, but it could be applied at every level. You could be, you know, leading from below, you know, like what you call a, a servant leader. You could be leading in your family. You could be leading as a creative if you have a purpose and a vision for what you're saying. And, and you know, again, even a creative project like a book involves a team and involves appreciating the people around you. And also I appreciate what you say about conscious leadership being so entangled with physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. Because if you're sick in bed, for instance, you're not going to be a creative leader. If you're in toxic relationships, you're not going to be a, 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 an insightful or powerful leader and, and so on. So I think people forget that those things are, are fully integrated in. And, and that's important. I appreciate that your book mentions that. And, uh, and I really do, do think also people should read Conscious Capitalism. This was such a great follow-up to that book, which you had written, I guess, like a decade ago now. Well, seven years and ago. It came out in 2013. I, I remember being in Austin and seeing it in all the Whole Foods. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, again, you know, John, I really appreciate you, you spending the time coming on the show and, and further explaining the book and, and, and answering my questions. It's been a, a, an honor to have you here. And thanks so much, and, and good luck with the book. Again, the book is called uh, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business by John Mackey. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, James. 